Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Wayment. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about the mental health crisis. Just a few days ago in the newspaper, the Texas Tribune, the headline read, Texas's shortage of mental health care professionals is getting worse. Texas ranks dead last when it comes to access to children's mental health services, according to Mental Health America, a nonprofit advocacy group. Joining me today is Dr. Hilda Loria. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Division of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Loria currently serves as the center director for the Reese Jones Center for Foster Care Excellence in Dallas. Her clinical advocacy interests focus on care of vulnerable child populations. Dr. Loria, thanks for being here today. Absolutely, Holly. Thanks for having me. May I call you Hilda? Yes, of course. (laughs) So Hilda, that troubling article says today, 98% of Texas's 254 counties are wholly or partially designated as mental health professional shortage areas. It's just astounding, and it's so troubling and scary. Yeah, absolutely, Holly. I mean, I think, you know, over the last couple of years, mental health everywhere, but I think mental health, particularly for children and adolescents, has has really come to the forefront, and we're certainly seeing that in Texas in our our day-to-day practice, not just for pediatricians, but I think anybody who's had interactions with with kids or adolescents, whether it's your own kids or at school or in your work that you do in your communities. And definitely, I think some troubling information and and should be alarming information for. So we're in the middle of a mental health crisis, right? Yes, um, definitely. I think the mental health crisis has been something we've struggled with as a country, but in the last couple of years, certainly since the pandemic, I think that's been much more prevalent um, and really has, we're seeing increasing numbers in mental health needs, um, especially for our children and youth. And you completed your medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, your pediatrics residency at UT Health San Antonio here, and an academic general pediatrics fellowship at UT Southwestern. And you also have a master's degree? Yes, ma'am, from uh, the UT School of Public Health in Houston. So what got you into this field? It's gotta be difficult and you face a lot of tough things. Tell me about that. You know, um, I, I did not think in med school that you know, I wasn't gonna, I didn't come into med school thinking like I was going to be a a foster care pediatrician. Um, I came into med school knowing I was going to be a pediatrician and, and didn't really change my mind through med school. 
Um, but in residency in San Antonio, I think I had such profound experiences and really great mentors and got really, really interested in just the impact of of trauma, so childhood trauma, things like abuse and neglect um, and social determinants of health and just multi-generational trauma and how that impacts our patients and families way beyond the symptoms that that we see when we see them for the visits within our the four walls of our clinic. Um, and so that really sparked me to pursue the fellowship in academic genpeds where I really focused on more getting public health training um, on how do we develop programs, interventions that address childhood trauma and the short and long-term impacts and of that to improve health outcomes for children and, and their families. Um, and when I finished fellowship, I was very fortunate to, to stay on faculty here at UT Southwestern and in the job that I do now as the center director and a pediatrician in foster care, I get to combine my interests in pediatrics with advocacy and public health and policy, um, so that I hopefully <laughs> through some collective advocacy and, and great mentors and collaborators um, figure out really feasible, effective solutions on a public health level to address things like trauma and especially now suicide and how we prevent suicide um, for a lot of the teens we're taking care of. Yes, and that prevention and the pressure on pediatric practitioners. I I spend a lot of time talking with practitioners in their clinics, and they just have so much coming at them. And there's a lot of stress when it when it comes to mental health issues with so few resources. Um, there's an article recently that was in the New York Times, and I quote. Young people are more educated, less likely to get pregnant, use drugs, less likely to die of accident or injury, said Candace Ogers, a psychologist at the University of California, Irvine. Quote, by many markers, kids are doing fantastic and thriving, but these are really important trends in anxiety, depression, and suicide that stop us in our tracks. We need to figure it out, she said, because it's life or death for these kids. Yeah, what do you say about that? It's it's awful. Absolutely, it's it's a I think a very powerful, sobering um, fact and, and information that we have been doing well to improve child health and pediatric health and in a lot of those measures. Um, but it should be very sobering that suicide rates have been increasing. Um, you know, and, and I think what is so impactful about suicide and losing a patient or a loved one to suicide is that it's the outcome of that is very permanent and is 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 a huge loss um, that is potentially preventable. Um, you know, I think 
over the last couple of years, you know, we've we've seen the numbers that among youth in the U.S. who die, over 25% die from suicide, and so that's that's one in four of the reasons why youth in the U.S. die. Um, and we've seen through the pandemic that since comparing 2019 to 2020 and 21, the rates of suicide are just are increasing significantly, um, almost 50%, more than 50% even in, in young girls. Um, like there was a morbidity and mortality weekly report from the CDC that showed when they looked at suspected suicide attempt ED visits from the pandemic um, compared to 2019 for girls age 12 to 17, that percentage increased by 50%, Wow, which is incredible. Is social media a huge factor? And is that something we should be talking to our patients about? Yeah, you know, there's there's lots of different factors. And, and I think what's really come into light over the last few years and, and what I based on my own experiences with our patient population and and um, the work that that we do in our in our communities. I do think that social media and how it can be used for bullying and creating unrealistic expectations and and even like contributing sometimes to that social isolation, not just physically from the pandemic, but potentially, just in a teen's own sphere of of community, you know, like even if you can feel surrounded by so many people, but if you don't have that true social connectedness, that can lead to a lot of of isolation, um, which are really big risk factors for for anxiety and depression, and those are risk factors for thinking about suicide and potentially death from suicide. So what is the message we should be saying to patients? To Is it to limit it to a certain amount of time each day, avoid it as much as possible, or what do you recommend? Yeah, you know, like social media is, is it's tough because I think it's been both a, a social catalyst, but I think also, as you've talked about, a really big factor that's contributed to the way that teens perceive the world. Like I I'll share I think I think I think it's way harder to be a teenager now than I imagine it was for me as as a teenager. There's just so much coming at at them and in a world where I think you're getting so many messages and so many social pressures. And if you don't have an adult who cares about you and can support you so that those maybe unrealistic expectations don't become what is embedded as like what my life should be, or if you don't have friends and family and loved ones who truly, I think, have that social can provide that social support um i do think it's important to have an adult who cares about about teens and it is 
managing or talking to them about social media and and the way that we're using it seeing your friends I know my daughter saw like her friends together at a party that she wasn't invited to you know just seeing things like that I mean that that's hard yeah yeah you know so much about being a teenager is just like figuring out who you are and a lot of your identity is based on who your friends are you know like that's that's what adolescence is about it's it's figuring out who you are um and a lot of that is influenced by the people you're around and and it is you know like we have so much access to information that i think sometimes that can be very overwhelming and and can have an impact for sure on on mental health for for all of us so with such few resources, there are some new programs out there that I'd like for us to talk about. Tell us about CPAN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so CPAN it was a great collaborative that um, was developed by several stakeholders within the state of Texas. Um, I was able to to provide some feedback on that, um, working with the Texas Pediatric Society um, on our mental health committee, um, Dr. Noon Tran um, was our representative and has been very instrumental as a developmental behavior pediatrician to collaborate with our mental health professionals in the state to create CPAN. So um, essentially what, what CPAN is, is that it's a resource for um, pediatric practitioners. So pediatricians, pediatric nurse practitioners, PAs, um, family medicine docs who are seeing kids and youth in their clinics um, and may want to consult with a psychiatrist on how to evaluate, manage, treat a mental health behavior health symptom. Um, And so what a provider can do is enroll in the program, which does not take a lot of time um, or effort. And what happens is if you have a patient who you would like to consult with a psychiatrist or mental health professional, there's a number you call. Um, which we'll put in the in the text for this, and I'll mention it also in this podcast. <laughs> yes, and then... Um, the CPAN staff are available Monday to Fridays, um, eight to five. Um, and they, if they're able to, they can talk to you then. And if not, you can leave a message um, and they'll call you within that same day to- quickly, um, Right, yeah, I mean- That same and day can... and pretty quickly, I think, you know, sometimes even in like 10, 15, five minutes, um, depending and... on the availability. Well, and it's a pediatric psychiatrist who you can talk to, and this is available for, like you said, for pediatric practitioners. I have that number here. It's 1-888-901-CPAN, C-P-A-N. So from Monday through Friday from 8 to 5, that's a number that could, where you could reach someone and really ask about anything, right? Yes. Yeah, and it's usually connected with a hub in your region. Like, so for us in Dallas, it's connected to our UT Southwestern psychiatry colleagues, um, pediatric psychiatry colleagues. Um, And you can ask about 
you know, like I'm having a patient who's exhibiting a lot of aggressive symptoms, like what, um, and they're already getting therapy and behavior supports. Um, do you think that medication may be a helpful adjunct to the, to treating the aggressive symptoms? Um, you can also talk to behavioral health clinicians who can help navigate like what type of therapy or consultation um, counseling may be available in, in the area. Um, I know I've had some pediatrician colleagues who practice in more rural areas and um, they have been able, because of CPAN, have been able to connect their families with a therapist. Um, and, and in this case, it was even a therapist who was fluent in American Sign Language, which is amazing. So, wow. um, so it's been a really, really, I think, powerful tool to connect pediatricians, busy pediatricians and pediatric nurse practitioners and PAs um, who may not have immediate or close access to mental health professionals in their practice. So um, I think it's been really transformational for, for pediatricians and pediatric health professionals. T-Chat is a program where um, basically it's a, a cousin to CPAN is one way you could describe it, but it's where a parent or caregiver can go through the school system and, um, and basically have free mental telehealth visits with a pediatric okay. psychiatrist. So in the chat or in the text for this podcast, I should say, um, I will put a link to T-Chat on there. So those are free telehealth visits. So I think it's really important for pediatric practitioners to know that in the state of Texas, that that's available for their patients and it's free. Yeah. Any other resources you want to mention, Hilda? Or those um, those are kind of the two big ones. You know, I think because I, I recognize that, you know, for me, I'm in an academic center in a big metropolitan area where I do have the benefit of, of resources and, you know, like calling a, a psychiatrist um, who's not far from me and may even be in my clinic. Um, so I think for for maybe other practitioners who don't have access to um, a mental or behavioral health professional in their community that is accessible and affordable. Um, some other options include like utilizing telehealth. Um, one thing that's come out from the pandemic is is the fact that we're all now familiar and comfortable with telehealth. Um, and I think that's been a really great way to expand reach um, for families where you know, they may live in a rural area, but we can do a telehealth visit in our clinic or with a psychiatrist um, or even for therapy if if that's appropriate for the child to do that remotely. Um, and then I do think that um, utilizing things like school or like knowing what your local community resources are um, and partnering with them, like for us here, MetroCare is our, our mental health safety net. And so creating those partnerships and finding out what resources are available for families. Um, they might even be like travel-based services, depending on what part of the state you're, you're living in. Um, so 
those are other resources. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about screening for suicide. So you say rather than depression, screening for suicide um, is a much more effective way to prevent youth suicide. And this can be done in the general pediatrician's office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, the, because of the alarming numbers showing the increase in suicide among youth, um, the AAP, along with the American Academy of Pediatrics, along with the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the Children's Hospital Association um, worked together with um, colleagues um, at the National Institute of Mental Health and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to create um, the blueprint for youth suicide prevention. Um, so you can Google that, or maybe we can put it in the link, Holly, um, that um, there's a blueprint for youth suicide prevention on the AAP website that I found really, really helpful um, in terms of thinking about how do you incorporate suicide screening into your practice, whether you're an outpatient clinician or an inpatient um, clinician or even in the ER. Um, and so one of the things that that is in that blueprint and, and looking at the literature is that we've seen that um, depression screening alone, which I think many of us do in our clinics, probably through the PHQ, um, depression screening alone is not enough to capture suicide risk in patients um, age 10 to 21, because there are a lot of teens and, and other individuals who may not be depressed, but are feeling suicidal. Um, and so there was a study by Dr. Horowitz and her team where they looked at screening um, and saw that with the PHQ alone, that missed about 32% of participants who were at risk for suicide. Um, and then 56% of participants in that study who screened positive for suicide risk on um, the ASK, which is the, um, the ASK screening tool, which is the ASK suicide screening questions, ASQ. Um, they found that 56% of participants who screened positive for suicide risk on the ASQ actually did not endorse um, that they were having suicidal thoughts on the PHQ. Um, and so I think it's very definitely food for thought to think about whether we should be screening more for suicide rather than depression. And not every patient with suicidal ideation needs to be treated as an emergency. Yeah, Holly. So, you know, in talking, we've been talking a lot about the lack of um, affordable, accessible um, mental health services. And we've, we saw that through the pandemic where we were utilizing the ER a lot um, for concerns about suicide, but um, suicide that maybe not necessarily suicide risk that not necessarily not necessarily required 
um, an inpatient stay where they needed to be admitted to the hospital or the facility or or a um, psychiatric facility. Um, and so what the blueprint for youth suicide prevention hopes to do is to equip pediatricians, pediatric professionals um, to really have the skill set to be able to assess for risk and safety for suicide in the clinic and then decide what would be most um what would be the next step in assessing this patient like are they truly suicidal and have a detailed out plan um and previous risk factors for suicide and those are the patients who may need to go to the ED, who definitely have to go to the ED or need admission um, where they are not safe, they have a plan, they have a history of attempting suicides in the past, um, and they're endorsing an active plan today in clinic, those patients need to go to the ED. But for somebody who maybe has had suicidal thoughts in the past, um, but are not actively today um, endorsing actually a plan to to kill themselves by suicide um, and you're able to do what's called a safety plan where you work with the child and the family to come up with um, you know like what are my warning signs for when I'm feeling suicidal what can I do when I'm feeling that way um, who can I reach out to what are my coping skills um, and if you're able to assess for and create a safety plan and work with the family to decrease potential access to lethal means, so, you know, if they do have a gun at home or knives at home, um, if the family feels comfortable and is able to limit access to, to lethal means. For those patients, they may not need to go to the ER. Rather, um, you can follow up with them maybe in three, two to three days um, via telehealth, or if they already have a therapist or counselor or psychologist, then they can set up an appointment to meet them um, the next day if they already have one. And what about for kids who are showing signs of depression? Do you have any advice there? Yeah, certainly. You know, I think, again, it, it's hard to assess because dep having depression is a risk factor for suicide. But like we talked about, you know, not all patients who are suicidal are depressed. And so I think for anybody who's who's listening, whether you're a pediatric professional or um, a parent or a family member, I mean, I think it's it's really being attuned to noticing any changes in the child or youth that you care for, right? And being available and open and noticing that if if you do notice that they're feeling, down or or withdrawn, um, reaching out to them and and assessing for how they're feeling. And, you know, I mean, I think it is prudent to ask about 
are you feeling really depressed and really hopeless where you have thought about killing yourself or thought about suicide? Because a lot of our teens are aware of what that means. They may have known somebody who has died by suicide. And if we don't ask, you know, like they may not feel comfortable just sharing that information on their own. Um, and so asking in a way that is specific and clear, but supportive, um, that's what we can do in our clinics as pediatricians, as professionals, and as adults who care for a youth or teenager in your life. Why is there such a shortage in mental health professionals? Yeah, Holly, gosh, if I, <laughs> there is a way we could figure that out. Um, <coughs> we'd, gosh, be be able to provide services. You know, um, I think it's, it's, it's multifactorial. I think, um, one, we've just had an increase, I think, in awareness of mental health, which is great. Um, you know, I think not too far off in the past, mental health still had this incredible, I think, stigma or like, um, you know, that like mental health was just like something that, you know, you just need to get over and and didn't require treatment the same way that if you had a medical condition or diagnosis like diabetes or epilepsy. Um, so I think the awareness um, and increase in, in diagnosis and recognizing the problem, um, there's just been an increase in the number of diagnoses from a mental health standpoint that are happening. Um, I don't think that we have the workforce to be able to provide mental health services that are accessible and affordable for families. Part of that, I think, is, you know, like health insurance. Um, does, if you have access to health insurance, one, and then second, if you do, does that cover mental health services? Um, and then I, the other thing I think that is, that is really tough is even if mental health services are available, there has to be a relationship between the patient, the family, and the mental health professional um, so that they they can be connected in a way that's effective. And, and I think what I mean by, by that is um, we don't have enough, I think, mental health professionals who are um, diverse, culturally and linguistically and representative of the populations that we care for um, and have the experience of working with children and adolescents um, and addressing the traumas that our kids are experiencing. And so we just don't have enough mental health professionals. And I think some potential ways to encourage that are um, to figure out a way to increase workforce development. And, and I think those are things that can be helped with through health policies, whether that's increasing reimbursements for mental health services um, or creating programs that connect mental health professionals to the common spaces that children who may have mental health or behavior developmental symptoms show up, like schools or the pediatrician's office. 
Um, I'm very fortunate to be in a clinic that has integrated and a fully collaborative model where we do have um, a psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, and developmental specialist who work with us and we see the patients together in clinic. Um, and we're very fortunate to do that because we have philanthropic funding from the Reese Jones Foundation. And, and that's what's allowing us to provide that high quality service. Um, and what we hope to do is, is support programs that way um, and potentially figure out ways to, to reimburse those services that are providing accessible, high quality, um, trauma-informed services for for our patients and families. Um, and there is hope on the way. According to the Texas Tribune, Texas House Speaker Dade Fiedlin is calling for more than 100 million school safety and mental health, a, a package um, with $100 million in it, with nearly half of that package earmarked for children's mental health services. Millions of dollars more are expected to be poured into a variety of services for all Texans. And even the governor said, quote, Governor Abbott said, we must provide mental health services to students who need it last month. Yeah, yeah I, um, I do think that our, our leaders and representatives in government have um, done a lot to move forward initiatives to improve mental health for, for children and youth in Texas. I mean, CPAN came out of the legislative session a couple of years ago um, and funding for things like mobile crisis units. Um, and there are a lot of other initiatives, including initiatives that that are meant to, to increase workforce development. Um, so I am very grateful for our representatives and leaders um, who create policies within our state to try to improve health outcomes from a mental health standpoint for, for children and adolescents. What other resources are out there for practitioners? Yeah, I think the only other thing that I do want to share um, is the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Um, I, I think many, most of the listeners are probably familiar, but um, last year there was a really big change in, in um, making that number easier to remember. Um, so it's just 988 and you can call or text um, 988. And um, there's also a chat function in different languages. Um, but that is an easy number similar to, you know, 911 that you would use for medical emergency. 988 um, is a suicide and crisis lifeline. Um, and that's an easy number that you can share with patients and families or also with with colleagues or for yourself if you're needing support services. For, for practitioners, though, it seems like yeah. the pressure is high, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like there's an element of, of perfectionism that led us to where we are. And, but I think taking the pressure of yourself, you know, we're all human and you're certainly never going to be perfect at everything. But I think as long as you're being brave and doing the best that you can, um, that's what you, you know, like that's what you can do and, and you can always adapt. Um, and, figure out ways to be resilient. And so I think taking the pressure off of you don't have to be perfect all the time. You just have to be brave. 
Dr. Hilda Loria, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Oh, thank you so much, Holly. I really enjoyed this, and and thank you so much for for highlighting youth suicide. Um, I hope that it resonated with with a lot of the listeners, and I'm I'm happy to connect if anybody would like to discuss more. And I appreciate you and all of the brave pediatric practitioners out there. Thanks, Holly. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. Pediatrics Now is produced by Nick Mary. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.